This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. And coming up this week, we are going to do something a little different. We have two updates on cases we've previously covered, and we want to tell you about those developments. Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman are coming up with those updates. In the meantime, a reminder for all of our True Crime Chronicles listeners, check out our new podcast from Vault Studios. It's called Anything You Say. We explore the art of the interrogation, anything you want to know about how investigators get someone to start talking, and we'll look at a lot of different aspects of interrogations. Again, it's called Anything You Say. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we now turn to Reed Redman and uh, updates on a previous case we have covered before. You might remember this one. On episode 39 of True Crime Chronicles, A Murder in Colorado, we covered the 1980 murder of a 21-year-old college student named Helene Prasinski. As snow began to fall in the field where the body of young Helen Pasinski was found, obliterating any clues, authorities called off their search of the area. It's a case that took us to Denver, where Pasinski had been interning at a local radio station when she was killed. They've been talking with people in the area looking for some clue, but so far nothing. And they're afraid if they don't find something soon, they may not find anything at all. The first 40 hour, 48 hours, I'd say, are probably very critical in terms of the kinds of information that you receive and the, the amount of it. The radio station where Ms. Pasinski worked has offered a reward for information leading to the conviction of her killer. And law enforcement officers are asking that anyone with any information call the Colorado Bureau of Investigation at 759-1100. Helene Brzezinski's murder would be solved 40 years later when DNA evidence led investigators to James Curtis Clanton. Clanton confessed to killing Helene Brzezinski and pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in February of 2020. I'm joined by Nine News investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn to discuss some recent updates on the case. Kevin, can you start by giving us a refresher on what all happened prior to our first episode on this case back in March? Sure. Uh, This young woman, Helene Brzezinski, was a college student from Massachusetts. She came to Colorado in early 1981 to serve a a college internship at a radio station here. She was staying with relatives in one of the Denver suburbs to the south of downtown, and she rode a bus back and forth from the suburb to downtown where the radio station was. And in mid-January, she finished work one day, got on the bus, never got home, never got back to her aunt and uncle's house. And uh, her body was found the following day, uh, some miles to the south in a rural area, just in a field. She'd been stabbed to death and sexually assaulted. And uh, the case went unsolved for nearly 40 years. It was a DNA breakthrough uh, late last year, a genetic genealogy case where they were able to take DNA from the crime scene from Helene Brzezinski's body and her clothing and go through the process of using that DNA to identify genetic relatives and then use those relatives to build out family trees and eventually uh, led them to a man in Florida uh, who was in Colorado at this time, was living not that far from where this happened at that time, and he was arrested in uh, December. 39 years later, an arrest has been made for the murder of Helene Prasinski. Investigators say James Clinton kidnapped Helene in 1980 on her way home from work and then brutally raped and killed her in a field in Douglas County. Just a few weeks ago then, Nine News got a hold of a bunch of police footage offering new insight into this whole series of events and the arrest. Can you walk us through these new materials and what they highlighted to you about the case? 
Yeah, it was a lot of uh, recordings, both audio recordings and body cam recordings. And the most interesting ones to us were the body cam recordings uh, of the period when these officers from Colorado went to Florida, confronted this guy, got him to agree to come in and answer some questions, and then ultimately he confessed. Uh, and that confession began in a car ride on the way to the airport for his extradition and continued on the plane uh, during the flight back to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the body cam footage when they first go to pick him up and he actually goes with them to participate in an, inter- in an interview voluntarily. How do they convince him to to come and talk with them? So they carried out basically an elaborate ruse. Um, they, they set up outside his house. Uh, they obviously had been surveilling him, so they knew his routine. He was a truck driver. They were waiting for him to come home from work. And when he pulled up, these cops were sitting there and they said, hey, uh, you know, we're from Colorado. We're looking into a big financial crimes case back there. Your names come up in our investigation. We think probably what happened is somebody stole your identity, but, um, you know, we wondered if you'd come in voluntarily and and uh, answer some questions for us. Okay. So um, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to help us out with this. Your name came up initially as a suspect in a major securities fraud case out of Colorado. Uh, We're talking multi-million dollar case. Um, As we've started digging into the case, what we actually think has happened is that someone has assumed your identity back in Colorado because we're not seeing any connection between you and the entities in Colorado that are involved. They end up telling him because they're going to take him in a police car, they need to handcuff him. So he's handcuffed and taken to the station. And and uh, at the station, they have a room set up, you know, to interview him. And and so they carry out this ruse and they're asking him, you know, all kinds of questions related to this, you know, alleged multi-million dollar financial crime that he might be implicated in. So um, the, uh, the allegation here is basically that... Um, Securities transactions were transacted in Colorado over the last several months to the tune of several million dollars. Uh, a number of, uh, yeah, yeah, just just based on what we've dug up so far, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 you, you probably haven't scrolled that away, I'm guessing. Um, and the other people that we've talked to so far in the investigation were all in Florida. Uh, but in reality, what they were doing was they were trying to lock him into a lot of basic facts about his time in Colorado, when he was there, where he lived, what kind of car he drove, all this stuff. Um, And, you know, it it speaks to the evidence they had and didn't have in this case. They had DNA. They had his DNA, uh, you know, as they say in one of the tapes, in her and on her. But they didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't have an eyewitness. They didn't have fingerprints. They didn't have anything else to put him at the scene of this crime. And so, you know, their fear in a case like this is that the guy's going to say, oh, yeah, I I met that woman. We had consensual sex. And then I, you know, I dropped her off. I don't know what happened to her after that, you know. So, So they were trying to close as many avenues off for him to be able to make that kind of an argument later on in court. And they went on with this ruse for a good hour and then uh, eventually, you know, they get to sort of the, the key moment. Essentially, they tell him, you know, we're not that interested in stolen cars from 40 years ago, but I want to ask you about a woman. 
that uh, we are interested in and they slide a picture across the table and and uh, he says he doesn't know who it is doesn't recognize her uh, but he wants a lawyer and he knows he's being accused of something else and so they tell him uh, you know we've got a warrant for your arrest for first-degree murder and and um, and they stand him up and put the handcuffs on him and lead him out of the room so um, we actually have do have a warrant for your arrest uh, for first-degree murder and kidnapping for what first-degree murder and kidnapping that's you got the wrong guy we actually have your DNA uh, in her right on her um, all right. How do we go from this suspect putting a stop to the police interview, asking for a lawyer, saying you've got the wrong guy, to then it's just two days later, he just opens up and, and confesses to the murder? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've requested an interview with James Clanton and he hasn't responded to me. So some of this is going to be speculation. But the first thing he did was he waived extradition. And um, the next day when he appeared in court, uh, he he agreed to be returned to Colorado immediately, and that's a that's a it's not unheard of. But um, I'll give you a different a different case I'm working on involves a guy that was in Nevada in the Nevada prison system that was uh, identified as a suspect in four murders here in in 1984, and he fought his extradition for it took 20 months to work its way through the court system in Nevada before he was finally returned here. So. In this case, this guy waives extradition right away, which suggests that maybe he wants to just get back here and and face this and deal with it. Um, And then, of course, on the way to the airport, we don't know how that conversation started because it wasn't recorded. You know, um, what what the sheriff's investigators say is that he told them he wanted to talk to him, and so they stopped the car, and the one started up his recorder, and that's where that recording begins with him reading him his rights and so forth, and then— asking him about uh, Helene Przinsky. Mm-hmm. And you've, of course, watched all the footage of this confession or all the footage that's available of this confession in the car ride and then on the plane. Are there any moments that stand out to you in that footage? Yeah, I, there's a couple things that stand out. One is um, just the matter-of-fact way he describes it, you know. I knew that was going to come up and get me one day. Why, why was it going to come up and get you? Did you murder someone? I did it. Okay, you did what? I killed the girl there accusing me of killing. Well, you know, I, I, I took her to a woodshed, and that's that's where the rape occurred. You know, it's it's so contrary to the violence that occurred. You know, I mean, Helene Brzezinski was stabbed nine times. Six of those stab wounds punctured her lungs. Probably any one of them would have ended her life. Um, she was, you know, brutally sexually assaulted, and um, and the conversations that he has with him, he, you know, he gets emotional at times, but he never really seems to have trouble. Just like I said, just being so matter of fact about what he's saying. If you watch some serial killer movies, yes, sir, and documentaries, I have went through every stage of the making of a serial killer. I mean, that you see on TV. And, but I'm not a psychopath. Right. You know, I I got a conscience. And in my mind, I had actually took the step over to become a serial killer with Helen. Right. 
and I couldn't because of who she was and I'm a serial killer of one. And one of the more disturbing moments, at least to me in the confession, is when he starts talking about serial killer documentaries and he says, yeah, I went through every stage of that progression. And in 1980, I was I was probably on the verge of becoming a serial killer. And given that he was then after that murder on the loose for four decades, it makes sense that investigators would be looking into whether he might be tied to some other crimes in the area. Absolutely. And the thing that's... um you know, that's interesting. And I was just, I was just talking to Anna Houston, the photographer I work with, um, about this earlier today. Um, you know, his DNA is in CODIS now. And obviously the Przinsky DNA has been in CODIS for years. And the sample has it never hit on another unsolved case during the time that it was in there before Clanton was identified. And, and it hasn't hit on one since, which suggests that you know, if he committed other crimes like this, he either didn't leave DNA or that DNA didn't end up into the, in, you know, in the CODIS database. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. I mean, um, most states have a statute of limitations on sexual assault and that statute of limitations. And for sure in Colorado, you know, if a rape happened in 1980, by the time DNA was in, in wide use, you know, in the early 90s, that those cases would have already been too old to prosecute and that evidence was probably never tested and probably never put into the system. So, you know, I've had a, a number of people asked me, ask me in the last few weeks, like, don't you think he must've committed other crimes like this? And it's like, well, it's an, it's an interesting idea that somebody could do this just once and then not do it again. But at this point we don't, we don't have any evidence that, that he has done it again. So then we have one other big update aside from all the new footage uh, when we released our first episode on this case, Clanton had already pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, but he hadn't yet been sentenced. What's happened in his case since then? His sentencing was delayed for months because of COVID-19. The court system in Colorado basically shut down uh, through much of the spring and into the summer. But finally, um, on July 1st, uh, he appeared in, in Douglas County and um, was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. Uh, it was it was a plea agreement with prosecutors. Essentially, uh, Colorado had a death penalty on the books in 1980, so it's possible that they could have tried to seek the death penalty. It's it would be complicated because Colorado repealed the death penalty as of July 1st, but anything that happened before that is still eligible for it if the charges have been filed before July 1st. Um, but so basically, the prosecutors said. You know, they would take the death penalty off the table in exchange for a guilty plea and a and an agreement that he'd spend the rest of his life in prison, and he agreed to that. So we did a 30-minute special that aired a couple weeks ago. And um, in that, it was one of the interesting things was, you know, he talked and talked and talked to the cops in that first interview and in the police car on the way to the airport and on the plane. But um, when, he, when it came to the court sentencing hearing where he had a chance to speak for himself, to apologize, to, to say something about, you know, what he had done and why he was taking responsibility for it, he left it to his attorney to read a, uh, uh, a statement on his behalf. Uh, so I, I thought that also was interesting. The second half of this episode of True Crime Chronicles is in regards to a major update to the case of Angie Hausman. Now, we covered this case all the way back in episode five of this series. I feel 25 years is just way too long 
for this little girl to receive justice. She died in a horrific manner. As a quick refresher, Angie was a nine-year-old girl who had just gotten off of her school bus in a suburb of St. Louis in 1993, but she never made it home. Her parents reported her missing, and there's a massive police and community search for her. Nine days later, a deer hunter hiking through a local nature preserve discovers her body. We pick up the story with an interview of Christine Byers, who's a journalist for KSDK in St. Louis. There were a lot of pieces of evidence collected at the scene. Um, Angie's naked body was found. Uh, She was covered in snow. Um, But a piece of her underwear had been used to gag her. Her nose or her eyes and her mouth were covered with duct tape. So there was touch DNA. There was a fingerprint. um, But they never got any matches um, because the DNA profile wasn't strong enough that they had gotten and the fingerprint um, just wasn't matching uh, what they had. It, it just wasn't apparently a good enough quality. So, um, you know, fast forward 25 years, the technology improves, there's advancements um, in DNA, and uh, the St. Charles County Crime Lab retests a portion of the underwear that were, were found in her mouth and find an ever so tiny piece of DNA where they're able to extract a full DNA profile, run it in the system, and at that point, Angie's killer had been in was in federal prison. So that made all the difference because his profile was now in the system and they now had a stronger profile. When the DNA hit comes back to Earl Webster Cox, they find out that he was one of the most prolific uh, distributors of online child pornography. In the world, actually, he was part of this international child porn, um, online child porn ring that was going on. And so that's why he was in federal custody. So, Christine, we left this story in episode five detailing how after 25 years of evading justice, Earl Webster Cox was arrested and charged with Angie's murder. Can you tell us about the latest update in regards to this case? So the latest in the story is that he basically uh, pled guilty to her murder and assaulting her. And it was pretty controversial here in the St. Louis area because this crime was so vicious and disgusting uh, that people really wanted the death penalty, uh, really wanted to see him put to death, of course, for what he had done to this little girl. But the the prosecutor in St. Charles County felt pretty strongly uh, about wanting to know once and for all what really happened to her and, more importantly, if anyone else was involved. And the only way that Earl Webster Cox was going to talk uh, was in exchange for life without parole. So the prosecutor um, gambled somewhat to get a full confession um, in the case and um, in exchange for a life sentence uh, without the chance of parole. Ultimately, they did, they ruled out that anyone else was involved. Now, the family of Angie Hausman still finds it very hard to believe that this one man was able to pull this whole thing off all by himself, keep this poor little girl trapped inside his mobile home for days, um, and then take her out to the woods and tie her up and duct tape her and everything else all by himself. But um, 
the prosecutors and the police that investigated this case are pretty confident that he acted alone. The only other person that they were thinking may have known something was his living girlfriend at the time. Um, but they said that they interviewed her extensively. And at the time she was new to the country, barely spoke English. I'm really not certain how she even got hooked up with him in the first place, but she was definitely extremely fearful of him. And she did tell investigators that there was a back bedroom on their mobile home that she was absolutely forbidden from going into. So that's where they think that um, he kept Angie for several days. And you were actually in the courtroom watching this hearing and a sentencing all unfold. Can you describe the courtroom and what it was like to be there to hear all of this firsthand? It was really dramatic. I mean, you know, the investigators, of course, that were seated in the courtroom, the prosecutors, the public defender and such, they had all seen him, of course, before. But for those of us who were in the gallery, including Angie's um, surviving family members, you know, this was their first time seeing and laying eyes on the man who they wondered about for all these years that could possibly do this to a child. And so when he walked through that door... I mean, the gasps were sort of audible. And, you know, it, it really did change the whole mood in the room. Um, he was extremely feeble looking, walking with a walker. His hair was about shoulder length and, you know, salt and pepper. He had this white beard. Um, of course, he was wearing a mask. Um, everybody was socially distanced in the courtroom. Um, it was about an hour and a half long hearing, which is pretty long for just a sentencing hearing where, you know, this isn't a trial, there's not a jury seated, um, that sort of thing. It was really just to read the stipulation of facts, you know, in court, make sure he testifies under oath and agrees to those facts and, and then let the judge sentence you. Um, but the judge really went through methodically piece by piece um, of this whole case. You know, everybody was really listening closely to whatever he would say when he spoke because he was really hard to understand because he spoke so quietly. Um, he and he also kind of sounded like an elderly man without who was not wearing his dentures when he talked. Um, so I couldn't see beyond the mask if he was missing any teeth, but it really sounded that way. Um, and the prosecutors had told me that he has suffered several strokes. And so, you know, all of that combined, it's like you, you sort of expect this monster to look like a monster. And then he enters the room and looks like this, you know, almost Santa Claus looking kind of guy. And it's just so unexpected um, because you build up a person like this in your mind over all this time that has done these things to look a certain way. And he just didn't. But, you know, I said it to the prosecutor, too. And he goes, yeah, but the evil in his eyes was still very, very present. He looked at me several times and glared at me several times. And you could just see that it was there, um, which, which was pretty chilling because, you know, we, we weren't that close as, as much as he was. But but, yeah, it, it was pretty intense. Did Earl Cox give a statement or issue any sort of apology so there was um, a document that was read in court called the Stipulation of Facts. It was basically a page and a half list of facts that Earl Webster Cox put his name to um, saying, yes, I did these things. But um, as far as him speaking in court, it was really fascinating because 
he pretty much would just only answer yes, sir, no, sir, you know, very simple answers. Um, but as the stipulation of facts was being read aloud in court and all these awful details of the torture this little girl suffered were coming out, he paused at the point where they said he left her body in the woods knowing that it would cause her death. And he looked over at his attorney. His attorney was nodding for him to, to agree. He asked to speak to his attorney. They had a little sidebar. But he was really hesitating with answering that question. And one of the things that the, the St. Charles County prosecutor, who has experience, of course, with child abuse and, and, and awful cases, says that the abusers often like to distance themselves from the more egregious and awful aspects of their crimes. And so for Earl Webster Cox, perhaps the most egregious, awful thing he did was cause her death um, by leaving her there. And he really did he really hesitated in answering the question. The other alternative for that reason could be that that is the central reason for the life without parole sentence. If you, you know, that was the crux of the case right there. Admitting that you knowingly caused her death um, was a big aspect of it. But nonetheless, I mean, he didn't really say, he never apologized. Um, you know, he, he was offered the chance to make a statement to the court. Um, really had nothing to say. And I understand that several of Angie's family members gave impact statements. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Emotional um, and riveting. Uh, there were five in all that were read. Um, one from Angie's stepfather, one from her um, half-brother, one from her mother's sister, one from her father's sister and one from her cousin. Uh, Angie Hausman's uh, mother unfortunately passed away several years ago due to cancer. So she never lived to see this day. And um, Angie Hausman's father, biological father is still alive, but his sister appeared in court on his behalf that day and said basically that if he were to have been in that courtroom, he knows he would have gone to jail because he would have tried to kill Earl Webster Cox. So he didn't, he didn't attend the hearing. But his sister did. And so it was interesting to see the sisters of Angie's parents um, speak on her parents' behalf. And, um, you know, she, at the time of her disappearance, was living with her mother and stepfather and her little brother, who was only a toddler at the time. And that was one of one of the heartbreaking things, uh, was listening to his impact statement when he basically said that all this time he has blamed himself for his sister's murder because he was a rambunctious toddler and had his mother not been so tired from taking care of him, maybe she wouldn't have been sleeping and napping when Angie was supposed to come home that day on the bus. And maybe she would have realized that Angie was missing sooner than she did and it was all his fault. And then his mother's sister got up and assured him, you know, you were not a mistake. You were very much wanted and loved by this family. And this is this is not your fault. Um, so clearly a lot went on in that family um, in, in all the years since this occurred. So after all of this time, over 25 years, and this case finally has some sort of just ending, I can't imagine what the emotions were like as you all left that courthouse. So... 
the reaction leaving the courtroom um, was somewhat mixed. I mean, again, I, you know, I mentioned that there were people, including Angie's family members, that really wanted the death penalty. Um, Angie's father's sister, for one, said that many times uh, after the announcements and, and the sentencing that he should have been put to death for this. This isn't right. My niece didn't get the right to live. So his right to live should be taken away as well. Um, the prosecutor did a press conference on the courthouse steps following the hearing. Um, Earl Webster Cox's attorneys did not offer any comment on his behalf. Um, interestingly, that was another point at which uh, Mr. Cox decided to talk to the courtroom and make any kind of comment was when the judge was asking him uh, as part of protocol in, in these kind of cases, do you feel that your attorney represented you competently? And that's when he piped up and was like, oh, I think he's the best attorney in the country. He put so many hours into this case and talking with the prosecutors and negotiating on my behalf and just went on and on about how wonderful his attorney was. Um, so that that was another sort of bizarre moment. Um, but anyway, so the prosecutor gives a press conference after the hearing and the family, you know, actually stood by and listened to every word and some of them nodded in agreement and some of them shook their heads in disagreement. Um, and that's just kind of how it went. So having actually been there and researched and reported on this case for several years, what was your personal takeaway from the hearing? You know, I felt like there were a lot of answers finally to this mystery that ha that has gone on for so long in this community. Um, I also feel like it left a lot of questions, it's, at least in my mind, of how in the world did they miss this guy? Um, you know, all these facts came out, including the fact that he had been arrested just two years before on suspicion of molesting uh, uh, two seven-year-old girls it, right by Angie's school. And he was um, living in a mobile home just miles from where he dumped her body. And so this, with that recent arrest history and all those hundreds and hundreds of suspects they questioned um, in, you know, in those initial weeks of the investigation, I just still don't understand how they missed this guy. But during his press conference, you know, the prosecutor said that had this whole thing unfolded uh, today, given today's technology combined with the improved communication among police departments, um, he believes 100% that if this happened today, there's no way on earth they would not have identified Earl Webster Cox immediately and, and quickly uh, and, and gotten him. And so that, that was another fact that came out, too, was, well, what were you doing in that area at that time? And at the hearing, he insisted that he just happened to have car troubles that day, stopped on this street to check his car, and looked up and saw a school bus, and then saw a little girl get off the school bus and start walking. And he said that he struck up a conversation with her. He also said in court that um, it was cold out and that uh, she was crying. And so he offered her a place to sit in his car. 
And at that moment, Angie's family members in the audience, some of them started to shake their heads, no way that she would never like willingly sit in a stranger's car like that. They just weren't believing him. Um, and so also very um, sketchy on admitting that he forced her in any way to leave with him. Like it was as if, you know, she, he was trying to paint her as a, as a willing participant or, you know, consenting participant in all of this, which really did Angie's, especially Angie's maternal aunt. Well, thank you, Christine, for bringing us this update. One thing I would add is that he does still have a case pending against him in St. Louis County, because as I mentioned before, he was arrested on suspicion of molesting two little girls near Angie's school a couple of years before Angie was abducted. Um, And investigators, as part of Angie's investigation, tracked down those victims. And one of them was willing to uh, move forward with pressing charges. And so uh, they were able to get charges issued against him for assault and child molestation in St. Louis County. Um, and so though that case is still pending. So we may not have heard the end of this yet. Of course, now with a life sentence without the chance of parole, um, we'll have to just wait and see and if the victim in that case wants to pursue this any further or if um, she's satisfied with this outcome. 